A new cold case squad was organized by Sheriff Bizot in 2009 to address 12 unsolved cases from Livingston County and 60 from Washtenaw County. One of the cases was Christina Castiglione's. The task force continued to investigate tips, leads, area homicides, and similar cases. But their main focus was obtaining DNA samples from men named in the case file. These were men such as Tim N., who was Ronald Y.'s roommate, Dennis, the phone company guy, all the men who knew Christina, like Mike A., her ex, Ted, and Chris, her boyfriend. The cold case team also focused on a local person of interest, Michael F. Michael F. had been arrested for sex crimes and was a known violent offender, whose crimes were committed in the same general time frame as Christina's murder. He also lived on Fisher Road in Howell, about three-quarters of a mile from where Christina's body was dumped in Oak Grove. Anxious to find out whether this guy had killed Christina, the cold case team decided to do a trash pull on him. In October 2011, Detective G. Childers grabbed Michael F.'s trash from outside his house on Fisher Road. He brought the trash to the sheriff's office and pulled out five items that looked like they might contain DNA and sent them to the lab for analysis. They must not have gotten workable DNA because on December 16th and 17th, Detective Childers was planted as a worker at the Brighton, Michigan Meyer store under a fictitious name. His assignment was to obtain DNA from Michael F., who worked in the dairy department. Childers consulted store management, who agreed to the scheme, and they placed him as a temporary worker in the dairy department on the days that Michael F. worked, pretending that they needed extra help during the busy holiday season. Feigning busyness, the detective watched Michael open yogurt boxes using a box cutter, which he would put in his mouth while stacking the yogurts. When Michael F. walked away for a second, Detective Childers quickly switched the box cutter for a different store-issue box cutter that looked identical. He also managed to snag a pair of work gloves Michael F. used, again switching them for a different store-issue pair. Testing on the gloves and box cutter was able to obtain DNA from a male, presumably Michael F., who had been the only person touching those items as observed by the detective. Comparison testing of that DNA and the DNA of the unknown suspect proved not to be a match. Michael F. was not their man. As I said, Robert Bizot was now Livingston County Sheriff. In 2013, his agency worked with Crime Stoppers to erect a billboard saying, please help us solve these crimes, and bearing photos of Kimberly Lewisell, Christina Castiglione, and Paige Rankowski, a young Michigan schoolteacher who vanished in 1990. Her car was found on the side of I-96 with her shoes inside. A second billboard was erected later that year with the caption, do you know what happened to us? The billboard stayed up for a year. Another surreptitious DNA grab was done in 2014. This involved a persistent tipster named Frank S., who lived very near the Oak Grove State Game area. He had called the Michigan State Police in April 1984, reporting that he'd found a set of women's clothing, jeans, a shirt, bra, and panties, on the ground within the park. He was certain they'd been dropped out of a yellow Ford Fairmont driven by a white male with light hair, a reddish-blonde color. The Michigan State Police sent out some troopers and search dogs and searched the area but found nothing else. Several years later, Frank S. was outside his house, which was nearby, when a young man walked by and they started chatting. 
Frank brought up the murder that had happened in 1983. And the man remarked that, yes, he knew Christina. He sat behind her in class. Frank S. found this to be too coincidental for his liking and started to fixate on this classmate of Christina's, whose name was Thomas, as her possible killer. He even obtained and looked through her high school yearbook and saw that this guy Thomas was on the same page she was. Frank made a detailed poster for the investigators with a photo of a Ford Fairmont, a photo of Christina, a photo of Thomas, and a bunch of other stuff. Police actually tracked down this Thomas classmate and questioned him. He said he knew Christina from school and he liked to walk his dog in the state game area, but that was it. He willingly gave a DNA sample and was ruled out. The investigators were skeptical of Frank S.'s motives, feeling as though he was too invested in the case as he'd called the police a number of times. Frank moonlighted as a Barry Manilow impersonator. So, police used a local bar owner and set up a fake interview with him about performing. They sent Detective Childers to act as a busboy at the bar. He took Frank's used glass and straw and sent them in for testing. Nope, Frank was just an odd duck, but not a killer. All in all, the cold case investigators considered 50 to 60 potential suspects over these latter years of the investigation. Serial killers, sex offenders, other murderers who might have been in Michigan. None of them could be connected to Christina. In 2015, the LCSO made a push for tips that involved publicizing the case again and terming it the possible work of a serial killer. Various tips were called in that led nowhere. A couple of years later, the investigators began working to see whether they could officially connect the Kim Lewis cell and Christina Castiglione cases through DNA evidence. In December 2018, cold case team detectives Edwin Moore and Robert Getchman of the Livingston County Sheriff's Office met with the Michigan State Police about Kim Lewisell's case. They learned that the vaginal swab slides in Kim's case had been lost, and other evidence had been tested and declared too degraded to be of use. And then, somewhat shockingly, in March of 2022, Detective Sergeant Matt Young determined during a review of previous lab records that certain items in evidence in Christina's case had never been processed for DNA. On March 11th, he sent the sock found tied around Christina's neck and her bra and fingernail clippings to the Michigan State Police Lab for DNA analysis. Despite testing with the best modern DNA technology, no DNA was obtainable from these items other than Christina's own. But they still had some original samples taken from Christina's body, the vaginal swabs that had yielded her killer's STR profile. So that same month, in March of 2022, the LCSO applied for and received grant funding through Season of Justice to undertake advanced DNA testing of the suspect DNA samples collected in 1983 and proceed to forensic genealogy. You've heard me mention Season of Justice before in my episode on Kim Bryant. They're a Las Vegas-based nonprofit that awards grants to investigative agencies in need of funding to conduct DNA testing in homicide, sexual assault, and Jane or John Doe cases where forensic genealogy is the best option. On May 4, 2022, Detective Sergeant Young sent Evidence Item 89, the suspect DNA extract from a vaginal swab obtained during Christina's autopsy, to Othram Labs in Texas. It was anticipated that the entire extract would be consumed during the testing and SNP profile preparation process, and everyone prayed it would be worth it. Othram required about 12 weeks to obtain suitable DNA and create a SNP profile from the submitted sample. Once they did, 
they uploaded the profile to the open source genealogy databases, and in GEDmatch, they got really, really lucky. They were able to provide the Michigan investigators with an investigative lead within 24 hours. The top match, a living man named C.C. Shaw of Howell, Michigan, shared 1,750 centimorgans of DNA with the suspect. This amount of shared DNA is most consistent with uncle, nephew, and equivalent relationships. And C.C. Shaw shared zero X-DNA with the suspect. Since men inherit X-DNA from their maternal ancestors, this was a definitive indication that C.C. Shaw and the suspect were related along their paternal line. C.C. Shaw was the youngest son of Thomas A. Shaw Sr., who lived from 1902 to 1979, and his wife, L.M. Overbaugh, who lived 1906 to 1955. C.C. Shaw had two brothers and a sister. The estimated age of the suspect in 1983 and the shared DNA segments indicated that he was most likely a nephew of C.C. Shaw. The absence of X chromosome sharing between C.C. Shaw and the unsub meant that the suspect was likely to be a son of one of C.C. Shaw's brothers, and only his eldest brother, Thomas A. Shaw Jr., who died in 1990, appeared to have sons based on public records. The other brother had only daughters. Thomas A. Shaw Jr.'s wife was named Alice Shaw. The couple had two sons. One son was Charles David Shaw, who went by Chuck, who was deceased. The other was still living. I'm referring to him by his initial only, which is S. Shaw. Autham's report pointed out that, quote, there is no genetic support to favor one of the above brothers over the other as a candidate, end quote. The lab also emphasized that although the sons of C.C. Shaw's sister, Anna Shaw, were technically possible candidates to be the suspect based on family tree position, they were nephews of C.C. Shaw as well, they were much less likely candidates due to the absence of observed X chromosome matching that would be expected for Anna's sons since they would have inherited X-DNA from her. So Autham recommended that the investigators obtain a DNA sample from S. Shaw, the living nephew of C.C. Shaw, his brother Thomas's son. This would inform them as to whether he was the suspect or was a sibling of the suspect. Detective Young started looking into the Shaw brothers on July 28, 2022. He quickly determined that S. Shaw did not have an arrest record, but Charles did. And that arrest was for attempted kidnapping of a young woman in Fowlerville, Michigan, just two years before Christina Castiglione was taken. And Charles Shaw had died in 1983. It was time to get a buckle swab from S. Shaw. Remember, the detective didn't know which brother was his suspect, the dead one with the record or the live one. On Monday, September 26, 2022, Detective Burke and Detective Sergeant Young went to S. Shaw's place of employment, the General Motors Flint bus and truck plant. Their goal was to obtain a DNA sample from S. Shaw to find out whether he was their killer or his brother was. They planned to just ask him for the sample after telling him what they were investigating, but they had a search warrant in their back pocket in case he refused. The Human Resource Department summoned S. Shaw to a private room where Detective Sergeant Young informed him that they were investigating a 1983 murder and his DNA was needed. S. Shaw agreed to cooperate, and Detective Sergeant Young swabbed his cheeks with two swabs. He packed up the swabs and sent them overnight to Othram. When the investigators asked S. Shaw whether he thought his brother might have murdered someone, 
He said, yes. Detective Sergeant Young noted with interest that Charles Shaw had died in 1983, leaving behind a wife and child. For the sake of their privacy, I'm calling his wife Lonnie, not her real name, and his son Jason, also not his real name. While they waited for the kinship test results on S. Shaw's sample, on Halloween Day 2022, Deputy Capra and Detective Sergeant Young traveled to Clare, Michigan, to meet with Lonnie and Jason. Lonnie confirmed that Jason was the adult biological son of Charles Shaw. Jason said he was willing to provide a DNA sample for comparison to the suspect sample. A buckle swab was obtained and sent to Othram via UPS overnight air. On November 12, 2022, Detective Sergeant Young received a lab report from Othram for the DNA sample they had analyzed for a possible familial relationship between S. Shaw and the suspect sample. The report said, S. Shaw and the suspect shared 2,720 centimorgans of DNA. This was consistent with a full sibling relationship. S. Shaw had only one brother, the deceased Charles David Shaw, and it was looking more and more like he was the killer of Christina Castiglione. On December 23, 2022, Detective Sergeant Young received an early Christmas present, a call from Othram Labs. Quote, they indicated that testing of the buckle swab taken from Jason Shaw is complete and that Jason Shaw is confirmed to be the son of the DNA source found on and in the body of Christina Castiglione, end quote. Detective Sergeant Young's report then states, quote, with prior buckle samples indicating a sibling relationship to S. Shaw, an uncle-nephew relationship to C.C. Shaw, and now a father-son relationship to Jason Shaw, there are no other possibilities except that of the suspect DNA belonging to Charles David Shaw. With a lack of any other DNA evidence source, lack of additional suspect information or evidence from 1983, and the fact that all three DNA sources obtained from Christina's body during her autopsy in 1983 came from the same male contributor, there are no further leads to pursue in this incident, and the offender is now solely identified as Charles David Shaw, of Livonia, Michigan, now deceased. Okay, so what do we know about Charles Shaw? Well, for once, we know a lot, thanks to his surviving relatives who were willing to talk about him. Shaw was born on June 14, 1956, to parents Thomas Alexander Shaw and Alice Lawbridge Shaw. He had an older brother, the one I'm calling S. Shaw. The family lived in Redford for a time and spent a lot of time camping as a family in state parks in Livingston County, including... Brighton Island State Park, Lake State Park, Proud Lake State Park, and Bishop Lake State Park. His father Thomas hunted in the Upper Peninsula as well. By 1966, the family was living in Livonia. Shaw attended Frost Junior High School from 1969 to 1970, and then George Bentley Senior High School from 1971 to 1974, graduating that year. He was an average student and didn't have a lot of friends. Shaw began experiencing problems in his teens. His brother S. Shaw said that Charles started drinking alcohol in high school and later got into marijuana. In 1971, at about age 15, he spent time at the Hawthorne Center in Livonia for behavioral issues. No one could recall whether this was court-ordered or whether Shaw was committed by his parents. But both his brother S. Shaw and his wife Lonnie told the investigators that Shaw's father Thomas was verbally abusive and the two didn't get along. Thomas's pet name for his son was Whale Dung. 
Shaw's behavioral issues included fighting with his father and his brother and sneaking out of the house frequently. His mother was the peacemaker, and according to S. Shaw, his younger brother Charles could do no wrong in their mother Alice's eyes. She protected and babied him. More on that later. As an adult, Charles Shaw was five foot six, 145 pounds, with green eyes, blonde hair, and a fair complexion. He worked at Whitlock Manufacturing and then A-Line Plastics, both in Farmington Hills, Michigan. At the latter job, he was a machine operator from 1981 to 1983. His mother, with whom he was extremely close, worked there as well. Shaw started dating Lonnie in the winter of 1978 after meeting her at work, and in the time period 1978 to 1981, they camped all over Michigan. His family owned a trailer home in Lake Country, and Shaw liked remote areas away from other people. But his brother S. Shaw said that, that Charles was not the outdoorsy type. While he seemed to enjoy the woods and the solace he found there, Charles despised hunting and didn't think it was right to kill an animal. There's an irony. This was one of the things he and his father, Thomas, argued about. Thomas was a deer hunter. After two years of dating, Lonnie tried to extricate herself from Shaw. She said later that the relationship messed her up and she left him and moved to California in 1980 for a few weeks. But she couldn't stay away and she was pregnant with their son, the one I'm calling Jason. So she returned in December 1980 and the couple lived together on Swan Street in South Lyon. They married on January 31st, 1981. Jason was born on May 14th of that year. Detective Sergeant Young interviewed Lonnie at length while they were in the information-gathering stage regarding Shaw's life. Lonnie had a lot to say about her deceased husband and father of her child, Charles Shaw. The investigators visited Lonnie at her home on October 25, 2022. They had already told her that they had identified her husband as a possible murder suspect, and she had some things to tell them that indicated that Charles was struggling with his sexual identity. She related an incident that took place before Lonnie and Charles were married. In early 1981, Lonnie came home from work to find him passed out on their bed. He was dressed in women's black lingerie and a makeup painted face and a wig was lying on the floor. A trunk nearby contained women's clothing and accessories like underwear and purses. When Charles awakened from his passed out state, he was very aggressive and angry and trashed the apartment. But the incident initiated a heartfelt conversation between the two, in which Charles told Lonnie that he identified as a woman and was exploring having a sex change operation. This was a bit of a shock to Lonnie, who was pregnant with his child. But he also admitted to some behavior that Lonnie found downright disturbing and considered deviant. Charles admitted breaking into women's homes and stealing their underwear. He also said he liked to go into the woods behind their South Lyon apartment, dress like a woman, and hang himself, he said, to play, in quotes. To be clear, Shaw was experimenting with autoerotic asphyxiation. But he was also engaging in what Lonnie referred to as liquor enemas. She had seen the enema bags in the bathroom of their apartment. She said he would lock himself in the bathroom and that if she had to use the bathroom, she would have to use a bucket until he came out. Lonnie also saw magazines she described as sadomasochistic porn in the bottom drawer of Charles's dresser, as well as women's clothing, ropes, and makeup. Lonnie had tried to leave Charles in 1980 because she felt, in part, that he hated women. He often made very derogatory comments toward women while intoxicated. As far as she knew, he had no girlfriends before her. 
She said although he'd been abusive at times, punching her in the stomach once while she was pregnant because he suspected her of cheating, their sex life was plain vanilla. Despite all Charles's cross-dressing and robes and porn, he was not what Lonnie called kinky with her. But after she learned that he wanted a sex change operation and that he was ordering women's pantyhose and other things using the name Laura Shaw, she and Charles had gone to see a sex therapist who held classes called Love, Sex, and Marriage. Shaw had confided in Lonnie about his upbringing and his feelings that his father was abusive, and Lonnie witnessed some of this firsthand. She said that Charles and his brother S. Shaw were not close and that Charles was always picked on growing up. She remembered she'd been at the Shaw house on several occasions when Thomas would blow up and yell at Charles and Alice. She said that she and Charles were so uncomfortable in the home that they would hide in the basement sometimes. She didn't know whether Thomas knew about his son's cross-dressing tendencies, but she guessed if he'd found out, he would have flipped out. Alice, on the other hand, she said babied Charles and always tried to smooth things over. She said Alice would always say, apologies, 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 when Thomas and Charles were fighting. According to Lonnie, Alice always said that Charles was brilliant. Lonnie described Charles as being quite socially awkward. She guessed that he was possibly on the autism spectrum, as he wasn't good with people, he didn't do well in social groups, and he was extremely sensitive to noise. As a result, the two of them spent a lot of quiet time alone together. At first, they had a lot of fun together, traveling the state and areas of the Upper Peninsula on camping and canoeing trips, and even going to Chicago once. Like Charles's brother S. Shaw, Lonnie said that Charles was not the outdoorsy type. It seems to me as though he was seeking to escape being around people or being in places he was uncomfortable with. Seeking of an escape, Lonnie said that Charles was also a heavy drinker who became aggressive when he drank. She described a 1978 trip to the Thumb area of Michigan where Charles drank at least 17 beers in one sitting. She said he destroyed the motel room and threw chairs around that night. Charles told Lonnie he'd been admitted for reasons he could not fully grasp into the Northville State Psychiatric Hospital. He didn't know why he'd been placed there, but he admitted that he often got in fights with his father and his brother, and some of these fights got physical. Charles said he had permanently damaged his brother's finger in his childhood. He wasn't clear on what his psychiatric diagnosis was, but it's safe to say that Charles Shaw was a very troubled youth. One day in midsummer 1981, just months after Lonnie learned that her new husband Charles was experimenting with cross-dressing and sexual asphyxiation in the woods, Charles ran into the apartment and shut himself in the bathroom. Then, Green Oak and South Lyon police officers started banging on the apartment door. Lonnie opened it, and they said they had a warrant for Charles's arrest for an attempted abduction in Livingston County. The cops had to order Charles out of the bathroom, and when he finally exited, he had shaved his mustache off. He always wore a mustache. It was his signature look. Charles had literally attempted to abduct someone, and when that failed, run home and shaved off his mustache so he wouldn't be recognized. It didn't work. Let's talk about Jennifer. On July 22, 1981, at 10.05 a.m., a young woman named Jennifer D. from Gregory, Michigan, pulled her vehicle into the parking lot at the McDonald's, located at 945 South Fowlerville Road in Livingston County. She casually noticed an older model, small vehicle, pale yellow with black racing stripes and Michigan license plates, parked about 75 feet from her car. It appeared to be unoccupied. 
But before she could get out of her own car, the yellow car zoomed over and parked in the spot abutting her passenger side. A man quickly got out and walked behind her car and up to her open driver's window. He was a white male, about 20 years old, five foot six inches tall, medium build, with blonde wavy hair parted in the middle and a mustache, wearing blue jeans and a black t-shirt. He stood by her window and didn't say anything. She asked him what he wanted and he didn't reply, but he seemed nervous. He then reached into his left front pocket and pulled out a small black vial. This freaked her out, so she began to roll up the window. Suddenly, he sprayed the vial at her. She reacted by turning her head quickly, and the substance from the vial struck her on the left side of her face. It burned immediately. Then the man reached into the partially closed window, grabbed Jennifer by the hair, and opened the car door. She fought back, pushing the car door open and hitting him. He quickly let go of her hair and walked swiftly back toward his car. She yelled at him as he walked away, quote, Get out of here before I beat your fucking ass. He yelled back at her, I bet you would. He got into his car and drove out of the parking lot heading south on Fowlerville Road. Jennifer went straight to the Fowlerville Police Department to report this incident. She had memorized the license plate of the yellow car. The car was registered to Charles Shaw of Swan Road in South Lyon. Detective Gary Budd called in the identification to the South Lyon Police, and by 5.15 p.m., they had tracked Shaw to the apartment, where he was shaving off his mustache. The car, described by Jennifer, Shaw's 1975 yellow AMC Hornet with black racing stripes, was parked outside. They hauled Shaw away in cuffs. Jennifer then picked Shaw out of a lineup, even without his mustache. She positively identified the number four photo of Charles David Shaw as the man who accosted her. After Charles was taken away, Lonnie searched the apartment. In his dresser drawer, she found whips, chains, ropes, S&M materials, and a handgun. She also found a journal that she previously didn't know about. She read the journal and found that it contained names of women that Charles worked with and sadistic stories about what he wanted to do to them, involving torture, such as stabbing and burning. Lonnie then called her mother-in-law, Alice, and told her what had happened. Alice came over the next day and picked Lonnie up to go visit Charles at the Livingston County Jail. This is a quote from Detective Sergeant Young's report. Lonnie stated that while driving down Nine Mile Road from South Lyon toward Livingston County, Alice threw the gun that was in Charles's drawer out the window of the vehicle into a swampy, wetlands area of the road. She said she asked Alice, what are you doing? And Alice responded that the gun was probably a fake anyways, end quote. Lonnie recalled telling Alice about what was in Charles's trunk, and Alice said, oh, he's up to those tricks again. Then that trunk of dress-up items and the things in his bottom drawer just disappeared, and Lonnie fully believed that Alice had cleaned up her son's messes. The two never spoke of the sexual items and women's clothing Alice had disposed of. For his part, S. Shaw said he was never even aware Charles had been arrested in 1981. He said he wasn't surprised that Alice had helped Charles hide his secrets, and he felt that Alice was likely the person who had bailed Charles out of jail on his $5,000 bond. He was right. Charles was charged with attempted abduction for his attack on Jennifer. He pleaded guilty to aggravated assault and got two weeks in jail, two years probation, and mandated continuing treatment with a psychiatrist, Dr. Cotter. He was not to have any contact with Jennifer. Needless to say, Lonnie left Charles after this incident. She took Jason and moved out, and Charles moved in with his parents at their home on Woodring Road in Livonia. This was his home base from July 1981 to July 1982. 
Sometime around July 1982, Charles's grandma, Nettie Lawbridge, moved in with his parents. So he moved into her vacant house at 14391 Rockdale in Detroit. I will say here that it's really unclear whether Charles was going back and forth from his parents' house to the South Lion apartment or what, but the South Lion apartment will come back into the narrative shortly. Lonnie said that during 1982 and 1983, she allowed Charles to have some interaction with their son, Jason. He was seeing a new woman named Lorna and told Lonnie that he was getting his life back on track, even enrolling in some classes at Oakland Community College studying psychology. He occasionally took Jason to the zoo or the park, but he was not a part of his young son's life for long. On November 27, 1983, at 11.45 a.m., Charles's mother, Alice, found her son dead in a closet at his grandmother's house. He had strangled himself with a rope while apparently engaged in a session of autoerotic asphyxia. He was wearing pantyhose and high heels. His death was ruled accidental by the medical examiner. The death certificate lists the cause of death as sexual asphyxiation. Lonnie said she never knew the real cause of Charles's death until the investigators contacted her. She'd been led to believe by the Shaw family that Charles had fallen down the stairs. But she noted that no one ever spoke of Charles again after his funeral. When the investigators came knocking on her door decades after her former husband's death, Lonnie said she felt that her life had been a mess ever since her relationship with Charles, and she was eager to cooperate so she could get closure and move on. As for Charles's brother S. Shaw, he too was surprised when the investigators came calling. He had no idea his brother had killed anyone. They weren't close. He hadn't even been invited to Charles and Lonnie's wedding. But he did recall an incident involving a vehicle that led him to believe his brother was mixed up with something nefarious. From Detective Sergeant Young's report, quote, When I asked Mr. Shaw if his brother could be a suspect in a 1983 murder, he stated that he could. Mr. Shaw remembers his parents receiving a phone call from law enforcement agencies stating that the mother's car was found in a field with a bullet hole in it, end quote. What had happened was, sometime in the first half of 1982, Charles had borrowed his mother Alice's blue 1966 Ford Maverick. She later received a call from a Livingston County Police Department that the vehicle was found on a dirt road between Howell and Farmington Hills, and the car had a bullet hole in it. Sure enough, when the family got the car back, they found a bullet hole in the rocker panel on the driver's side door area. It was a small hole consistent with a 22 caliber round. No one ever figured out what had happened and why the car was shot up and abandoned in the middle of nowhere. S. Shaw said that after his parents died, he took possession of their paperwork and other materials. He was able to give the investigators a lot of information on his brother's timeline, records of his treatment for drug addiction at Harper Gray's Hospital, records of his treatment at Northville State Hospital, addresses of where he lived and vehicles he might have owned. So what else had Charles Shaw done? We know about the 1981 attempted abduction of Jennifer D. at the McDonald's. At the press conference announcing the closure of Christina Castiglione's case, Livingston County Sheriff Michael Murphy said of Charles's two-week jail time for that crime, quote, I would think that would be a little bit light back then, frankly. Seems a little bit light for an aggravated assault. Well, I would agree, especially because Shaw had a record. He was arrested on August 26, 1973, when he was still a juvenile, for burglary of a dwelling. 
a neighbor heard a sound of breaking glass and got up to look out the window and saw Charles in the bushes between the two houses. He was carrying a red suitcase and quickly ran away. The homeowner discovered the rear garage door was broken and hinge pins had been removed on the door into the house. A basement window had also been broken. The articles stolen included the red Samsonite suitcase, a GE transistor radio, a piggy bank containing $3 in dimes, and some genuine silver coins. But some other items stolen were bras, panties, female clothing, and Tampax. It's unclear how police got to him, but they caught up to Charles at the Hawthorne Center, the youth psychiatric facility where he was undergoing treatment as an inmate. He admitted to the breaking and entering and was convicted of misdemeanor B&E. Charles Shaw was also arrested on March 20, 1977, for drugs. An officer found him smoking pot in a corncob pipe in his car with an open beer. The incident report notes indicate that his mother reported that he was, quote, a mental, and he had attempted suicide in the past. Then we know he tried to abduct Jennifer in 1981. After that, he was arrested in November 1982 for larceny. This was at a local Kmart where the incident report reflects that he tried to steal a pair of tan women's shoes, valued at nineteen ninety-seven. The female security guard stated she observed Shaw in the shoe department. He grabbed the shoes, walked to the patio furnishings department, and stuffed the shoes in his jacket. He then exited the store via the main doors without paying for them. He was apprehended outside, and the shoes recovered. After that, he went on to kill Christina in March 1983. On February 22, 2023, the Livingston County Sheriff's Office held a press conference announcing the solving of the Christina Castiglione case. Detective Sergeant Matt Young gave a quick summary of what we know. He announced that while Charles Shaw was identified as Christina's killer by three separate DNA tests, unfortunately, he died in November of 1983 and will never be held responsible for his crime in a court of law. From an LCSO press release, quote, Based on information received from Shaw's family, he was described as a sex addict with a disturbing life who struggled with mental illness and his gender identity, end quote. Detective Edwin Moore spoke at the press conference as well. He'd been at Christina's original crime scene and then worked the case as a volunteer on the Livingston County Sheriff's Office cold case team. He said, quote, I was part of the group that originally processed the scene and did the interviews. I'm happy we're able to bring a conclusion to the family. Speaking of the Christina's family, before the press conference, Detective Sergeant Young visited with Christina's sister Anna at her home in Redford. They showed her a photograph of Charles David Shaw and told her that he was the person responsible for her sister's death. Anna was sure she had never seen him before. So were Christina and Charles Shaw strangers to one another? The investigators think so. They couldn't find any evidence that the two knew each other. At the press conference, Sheriff Murphy said, quote, when there's a homicide, there's normally some sort of connection between the victim and the suspect. And in this case, there was none. That's one of the reasons that this was 40 years in the making, end quote. The closest they could come to connecting Christina and Charles Shaw was learning that Shaw was a longtime resident of Livonia who lived on Woodring Street for many years, less than five miles from where Christina went missing. Further, Charles moved into his grandmother's home on Rockdale in Detroit in late 1982. That address put him living less than two miles from where Christina disappeared off Five Mile Road. 
Now let's turn to Kimberly Luzell's case. This all from a recent press release. Quote, in the summer of 2022, Michigan State Police's first district cold case unit reopened the Kim Luisell case and partnered with students from Michigan State University's School of Criminal Justice to re-examine Luisell's murder. The team of detectives and students spent several months reviewing the case, organizing and digitizing paper files, analyzing property and evidence, and resubmitting items of evidence to Michigan State Police's Forensic Science Division for testing. During this same time, detectives from the Livingston County Cold Case Team were working on the 1983 homicide of 19-year-old Christina Castiglione of Redford. Utilizing forensic genealogy, they linked Castiglione's homicide to 26-year-old Charles David Shaw, who died in 1983, never having had his DNA submitted into CODIS. As a result of their work, a genetic profile for Shaw was entered into CODIS, end quote. So now that Christina's case was solved, the investigators wanted to know once and for all whether Kim was killed by the same person. The cold case team and Michigan State Police working on Kim's case knew the odds were against them. The rape kit slides taken from Kim at her autopsy had gone missing in the mid-2000s. How were they going to connect Kim's murder to Charles Shaw? The answer lay in the piece of evidence they had found near Kim's body, something from the environment the killer had used on her. This item had never been tested because the lab had deemed it unusable as it hadn't been packaged properly. In June 2023, they decided to give it a try. And lo and behold, using cutting-edge DNA testing techniques, the Michigan State Police Forensic Science Division was able to obtain a single sperm cell. And from that sperm cell, they extracted a small amount of low-quality DNA. But it contained sufficient STR markers to qualify for CODIS. This from the report. The sample was entered into CODIS, revealing a match to DNA in the Castiglione case, linking Shaw to physical evidence recovered from the body of Kimberly Luisell. Well, you heard it here, folks. Christina's killer's DNA had been in CODIS for years. And once they finally obtained DNA evidence from Kim's killer, from a single sperm cell, and entered the genetic profile into the database, they matched. DNA evidence definitively linked Charles Shaw, the killer of Christina Castiglione, to the murder of Kim Luisell. The two cases had always been suspected to be connected, and now there was proof. Forensic genealogy had, in essence, solved two cases at once. Interestingly, while Charles Shaw's name never appeared in Christina's case file, it did appear in Kim's case file. Kim was abducted on March 20, 1982. Her body was found on April 14th. Two days later, on April 16th, the Michigan State Police received a tip from the apartment manager of the residential apartments at 22280 Swan Court in South Lyon. He said that the former resident of apartment 1022 was unstable and had severely damaged the apartment. He had moved out, but the manager noted that the apartment was very near the location where Kim Luisell had been abducted. The resident's name? Charles Shaw. From the 2022 police report, quote, the manager did not know where he had gone to. Shaw was not located, and an interview was never conducted, end quote. So someone had called in a tip naming Charles Shaw, albeit for sort of vague reasons, and because they couldn't find Shaw, he was never questioned. Here's another oddity. Remember the pair of high heels that were found sort of near Kim's body? They were never able to prove that they were hers. 
But Detective Sergeant Larry Rothman of the Michigan State Police revealed to me that they found a bullet hole in one of the heels. They immediately thought back to the car Charles had abandoned that had a bullet hole in it. Detective Sergeant Rothman told me he doesn't really believe in coincidences in his line of work. Why on earth would there be a bullet hole in one of the shoes found near Kim? Who knows? As I said, the police don't even know if they were hers. Which made me wonder, given what we know about Charles Shaw, whether perhaps they were his. The investigators who closed Christina's and Kim's cases believe that Charles Shaw picked up both young women at random. Whether he was out cruising for victims or whether he just happened to see them hitchhiking and decided on impulse to pick them up, we don't know. My vote is the former, given that he tried and failed to abduct Jennifer D. from McDonald's. I think he was driving around areas he was familiar with. Lonnie's parents' house, which he'd been to often, was on Clarita Street in Livonia. This was about a half mile from where Kim was last seen. And Kim's family home was just a few miles from his apartment in South Lyon. He lived right across the street from the middle school her sister Cindy attended, in between where Kim was abducted and her home where she was headed that day in 1982. Why would Christina and Kim get into the car with Charles Shaw? Well, we know that both young women commonly hitchhiked. And at five foot six inches tall, Shaw probably didn't appear intimidating. He probably smiled and said something like, do I recognize you from the area or I'm just heading up the road, coming in and out of the cold or something like that. But once they got into the car, something went very wrong. Charles Shaw was clearly a tortured individual. His identity struggles led him to drugs, alcohol, and violence. He hated women, according to his wife Lonnie, yet he wanted to be a woman. And he took out his rage and self-loathing on two young women who represented all that he was not. We don't know exactly what he did to them or where they were killed. But remember that Kim was believed to have been held somewhere for a time before she was strangled. Perhaps this was at the apartment that he trashed. Perhaps it was at his grandmother's house. Wherever it was, he clearly did not have the same freedom with Christina as she was killed the same night she was taken, a year later, minus a day. After he killed both young women, he dumped them in places he knew of, places he'd been camping or canoeing. Kim was dumped in Island Lake Recreation Area. Lonnie confirmed that the two of them had camped there together. Another thing we don't know is whether Shaw's death was truly accidental, as his death certificate implied, or whether perhaps his dying by asphyxiation, exactly what he'd done to his victims, was deliberate. As we've said, Charles Shaw was a tortured soul. It's not out of the question that he might have chosen to see himself out and do it with a bang. This is really interesting. Charles Shaw's wife, Lonnie, was so affected by her whole experience with him that she suspected he had very dark secrets. She had called a tip line and reported his name as a possible suspect in the unsolved Oakland County child killer case. She said that she watched a TV show highlighting the case in 2019, and it immediately reminded her of Charles and his tendencies. Police don't think Charles Shaw killed those four kids, but they do think he killed someone else in addition to Kim and Christina. Anne Doragazi was 20 years old and living and working at Camp Dearborn in Milford Township. She was known to walk along General Motors Road to go to the store for cigarettes and snacks. Anne was last seen on September 26, 1981, at 9.30 p.m., drying her hair in the women's shower building at the camp. On September 29th, she was discovered nude and strangled in a ditch off General Motors Road near the camp. According to Click on Detroit, quote, 
A young boy walking along General Motors Road there saw a body near the road. She had socks on. Her shirt was pulled up over her head. Her jeans and underpants were tossed on the ground near the body, end quote. Anne was suspected to have been killed elsewhere and placed in the ditch that morning because it had rained the night before, but her body was dry. Her case is unsolved, and Detective Sergeant Matt Young tells me there is no usable DNA in her case. But her murder certainly matches the M.O. used by Charles Shaw. And Anne was taken and found strangled about 13 miles from where Kim Lewisell was found. Charles was known to camp at Proud Lake State Park right outside Milford. He also had an arrest for an unknown violation in Walled Lake, also close by. Could Anne Dorogazi be Charles Shaw's first victim? Anyone with any information about Charles Shaw is asked to contact Detective Sergeant Larry Rothman of the Michigan State Police at 313-407-9379. Thank you so much to Michigan State Police Cold Case Detective Sergeant Larry Rothman and Livingston County Sheriff's Office Detective Sergeant Matt Young for speaking with me about this case. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID Podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to DNA ID Podcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.